You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, Interstate Batteries has thousands upon thousands of retail locations throughout the United States, and they have an awesome website, interstatebatteries.com, that will allow you to do your own research on a variety of batteries that they offer. I mean, these guys are responsible for tens of thousands of batteries, and these guys are very knowledgeable about batteries because it is what they do, right? Interstate batteries, right? So if you have any questions about specific batteries, you can go visit their website, interstatebatteries.com, or you can visit one of their thousands upon thousands of retail locations in the United States and talk with one of their battery experts. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, everybody, happy Friday. And welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. And today we have a really awesome podcast about a guy who goes out on public land and gets it done. He's very successful. We pick his brain about how he goes about becoming successful on public land. We talk about um, how he prepares for the seasons, how he works as a team with another group of guys. And, um, you know, we, we talk about how he has been successful in a really tough state to hunt like New York and how he used those principles to travel to other states for out-of-state bow hunts and uh, get the job done there as well. So uh, we're going to be talking with Todd Mead. He actually has a couple books out and um, we'll talk about those in this podcast as well. But before we get to today's podcast, really quick, if you are not subscribed to all of the podcasts on the Sportsman's Nation, whether it's the Nine Finger Chronicles, the Land and Legacy, uh, Southern Ground, the Son Outdoors, the Pro Talk Outdoors, and all of them, right? I'm not going to mention all of them, but go subscribe to them or just subscribe to the uh, network feeds, which is the Sportsman's Nation Whitetail or Sportsman's Nation Big Game, and you should get most of them. Um, if there's one that you really like, go Google, or not Google, but go search in iTunes or wherever wherever you download your podcast, the name of that podcast, and it will have a solo feed as well. So uh, go do that. 
Um, but we got a commercial now, and that's Hunter Safety Systems, guys. HunterSafetySystem.com. Go check out their website, right? And the reason I say go check it out because if you're in a tree stand and you're not hunting with a some kind of safety system or tree harness, you're a dumbass, and you need to be doing so um, because you're not only risking your life, but you're actually jeopardizing the life of, let's say, your wife or your kids or your other loved ones who may have to take care of you after you become paralyzed or break a leg or worse yet die so long story short go to huntersafetysystem.com check out all the harnesses that these guys offer and uh buy one it's pretty simple and use it Uh, that's the most important thing so there's the commercial i let's see i have two different harnesses one for actually hunting and one for actually setting up tree stands during the summer months. I, I forget the name of it. It's like the utility the utility harness or something. It's got big pockets in it so I can take screws up with me and saws and whatnot. So check it out, huntersafetysystem.com. All right, enough of the talk, and let's get into today's Hunter Profile podcast BS session strategy, whatever, whatever you want to call it, with Todd Mead. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mr. Todd Mead. How you doing, man? I'm not doing too bad, Dan. How about you? I can't complain. It's like 72 degrees in Iowa today, absolutely no humidity. I would not mind if the rest of the summer is exactly like today. Well, that's funny because over here on the East Coast in upstate New York, we have about the same weather today and uh, it hasn't stopped raining in over a month, so I I kind of like it also. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of wet conditions here in Iowa, and uh, the farmers are scrambling to get all the crops in the field. And um, I don't know where. Do, what kind of terrain do you live in upstate New York? I live uh, right at the base of the Adirondack Mountains, where the Adirondack Park starts. So I I can see mountains on one side of my house, and on the other there are crop fields. Gotcha. But I would prefer to be in the mountains to the north of me. It's a little bit cooler up there, and a lot less people. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Well, uh, today is going to be kind of a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different topics, a good, good old fashioned BS session. We're going to talk about some strategy. We're going to talk, you know, throw in a couple stories in there. Um, and you know, just kind of chit chat about the success that you've had over the years. Um, and the first thing, why don't you go ahead? You know, we've, we know you're from New York. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about where in New York you're from and then what do you do for a living? Oh, shoot. That could be a wide variety of things. <laughs> Every, everybody always says they're from upstate New York, but the argument comes into where is upstate New York. Most people think it's anything north of the city, but uh, I I tend to think it's anything north of Albany, which is a, the capital of New York State. Yep. So I live an hour north of Albany, and I live about 15 minutes from a place called Saratoga, where there is a lot of horse racing. Yep. And I live just south of a tourist destination called Lake George. Uh, lake George is a 32-mile-long lake, and it's it's kind of down. It sets down in between two mountain ranges, and uh, that's kind of where I spend most of my time. I, uh, you know, it's spare time. I can get to Lake George within 10 minutes from where I work. Yeah, I went to college to become a teacher. But then along the way, I realized that I wouldn't be able to do the things I wanted to do if I became a teacher because 
my main hobbies revolved around uh, hunting season. And I like to elk hunt and I like to deer hunt. And that's when I take all of my vacation time. So I really didn't want to be limited to hunting on the weekends. Yeah. So when I, as I continued into college, I did a little bit of uh, teaching, uh, went to classes and observed teaching, and I helped out a little bit. And I just realized that wasn't for me. So I de- decided I would get, get into communications, journalism, uh, stuff like that. And then I just kind of followed that path. But during my college time, I also took foreign language because foreign language was extremely easy for me, unlike a lot of people. So then I got out of work and I saw this ad in the, in the local paper here and it said editor. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll apply for that. I'll stay there for a couple of years and then I'll move on. So now, 29 years later, I'm still there. So, uh, yeah. so much for moving on. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, I don't make the most money in the world, but I make enough money to do the things I want to do. And, uh, and I have a quite a lot of flexibility to allow me to do different things when I want to do them. So I start when I started there. I started as what they call an editor, but it's really you know basically a bullshit title that they make people think they're going to be an editor, and that's not really what you were. Yeah. So uh, you were more like a data entry key puncher. Yeah. So then as time went by, they needed somebody to do French translation. And I had taken it all the way you know all the way through high school, all the way through college because it was easy. So. I was fluent in French, so I could do that okay. And uh, so I, you know, I said, well, I can do that because they didn't have anybody in the building. There were only 38 people there when I started. And uh, I said, I can do that. So I, I started doing it. I did it for 18 years. And uh, then, of course, I'm in corporate America. The, the 38 people who were there when I started became 500 people, 400, 500 people in my office now. And now we're part of a monstrous corporation, which is the Nielsen company. And uh, we've changed hands a bunch of times. And uh, I know you know how corporate America is. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, you go do your work, you're a number, and it really doesn't matter. And when they, when they're done with you, they're done with you. So, uh, so then after all the translation and stuff, I just decided uh, a job came up and it was for the copy editor of all of our written data. And that's where my experience is. So I just uh, applied for the job. I got the job, and that's what I do now. It's a pretty easy job. I just get to fix people's mistakes. And hunt. Yeah, and hunt, of course. And hunt when (laughs) you can use your vacation for hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the worst part about it is I think there are 400 people in my building, and uh, 398 of them are diehard liberals. (laughs) (laughs) that's funny because i felt that same way uh when i was working in you know the cubicle life i had i felt like where i worked there was maybe two or three people that i could have a conversation with and the rest of them you know (laughs) i i love i love working with them they're awesome but they just had completely different views than than me on almost every category and so you, oh, yeah. you just have enough, uh, you know, enough communication with them to do your job and then you go home after work. Yeah. It's kind of nice because I can go home. I don't have to take the job home with me and I don't, you know, yeah. I go do my own thing when I get out of work and when I'm there, I just do my job. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this being sure. in a state like New York, right. Um, you said 
living with, you know, or working with a lot of liberals, um, when people find out that you're serious about hunting, does that ever like change how people view you? Uh, I've, I've only ever come across that one time and it was, uh, it was fairly recently and, uh, a bunch of people where I worked, they were talking about a book, the most recent book that I wrote about hunting on public land. And, and there's this one guy who he's a really, really smart guy and he moved back up here from down in New York city. So it's a different kind of life up here than what it is in New York city. Mm-hmm. And he was really impressed when all these girls around him were talking about the book that I had written. And then he asked, well, what's the book about? And then they told him, and then he, he didn't want to talk about it anymore. Oh, that's it. And then that was it. It was done. So yeah. it, uh, but as far as like other people, um, I've never really had an issue. It's actually the first book I wrote, a lot of people that I work with just wanted to buy the book because I wrote it. They were just basically supporting me. Yeah. And then a lot of them went on to read it and they found out through reading it that hunting is much different than what they always thought it was. Yeah. Like, cause in, in my first book, it, it was basically all the adventures with my father. And then they realized like the bond that I had with my father and they realized like how, uh, I guess how involved and how in depth I was into that. Like that was my life. And I think it gave them a different appreciation for me. And it probably didn't change their their opinion on like hunting per se, but it changed their opinion on me and hunting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Almost like it gave them a better view into your life. Yeah. Like they, uh, they kind of looked at it and they said, Oh, wow. You know, maybe this hunting thing isn't so bad. He does it, and it sounds uh, it sounds like he has a connection to the nature. He's not just going out there and killing things. Yeah, yeah. And it gave, uh, you know, different appreciation for it. Then another, I mean, I've been involved also for the last, I don't know, it's been in the last five or six years. Uh, <laughs> There's another thing going back to work. One day I was sitting at work, and my phone rang. It was my cell phone, and I picked it up, and I answered it, and it was this guy from Australia. And I work with a lot of uh the company I work for, it's basically, we do a lot of TV listings and movie stuff. And he told me he was an international, uh, visual arts guy and blah, blah, blah. And I'm listening to him. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So uh, then he asked me if I was interested in doing, uh, he was going to do a film documentary and it was on hunting, but it wasn't like pro hunting or anti hunting. It was just basically to show people what hunting was. So I listened to his gig and then I decided, all right, maybe, uh, Maybe I'll do it. I said, I'll get back to you. So I hung the phone up. I'm at work and, you know, we work through the internet or whatever. I Googled his name and when it came up, I couldn't believe it because he was in IMDB and he was an internationally known uh, visual artist. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a big opportunity. So, uh, so then I called him back and I said, yeah, I'm interested in doing it. And now five years later, I've become pretty good friends with him. And we spent a lot of hours together where he has filmed a bunch of stuff and he hopes to eventually release the documentary on uh, like something like Netflix. And it's been fascinating for him and for me because he didn't know the first thing about hunting and he doesn't have an opinion on it one way or the other. And it, it's bizarre. Like, Last year, he was in Colorado with me. I was out there for two weeks, and uh, he could not believe how difficult it was. 
because we were putting on an average of 10 to 14 miles a day at uh, 11,000 feet, and uh, he just couldn't fathom it. Yeah. So it uh, it gave him an entirely different view of what he actually expected. Wow, and I, that's yeah. uh, I think it's the it's the experiences like that that really get the people who you know maybe are either indifferent or leaning towards being against hunting. Showing them an experience like that, showing them the work that goes into it, and it's not just a guy hopping out of his truck and shooting a, a deer that makes them realize like okay, I see why this can be so attractive and why people love doing this. Yeah, it, it was really cool because, like, I mean, we're in the, I woke up in the tent. It's like 3.30 in the morning or whatever, and he's in my face with a camera. And I'm, I'm a type 1 diabetic, so he has me, like, pricking my fingers. He has me uh, changing, like, my infusion set for my insulin pump. And, that's what, and I asked him, why are you doing all that? And he says, well, I want to show people that you're just a normal human being. You're a human being. You're not like a hunter human being. You're a hunt. You're a human who likes to hunt. Yeah. So it was, it was, I can't wait till it's released because I want to see like how, how it all comes out. Yeah. That'd be interesting to see for sure. I kind of, I want to, I want to transition a bit and I want to go kind of all the way back and I want to talk to you because you mentioned your father. I want to ask you like, it sounds to me like you and your dad were joined at the hip when it came to the outdoors at an early age. Why don't you walk us through about how your your father was a mentor to you and, and how he introduced you into the outdoors? Yeah, my father was raised on a dairy farm because, like as I told you before, we I live right where the mountains come into farm country. Right. So he was raised on a dairy farm. He never got much of an opportunity to do much as he was growing up. And then he and my mother got married in high school. Um, and then they had my brother the following year. So my father went, you know, he decided finally to get off the dairy farm. He was going to go work for corporate America with general electric. So when he did that, you know, he kind of worked his way up through the ranks and eventually he got a good job. And as he was doing that, he didn't want me to go through the same kind of things he did. Cause uh, you know, he knew people that hunted cause you know, we're from uh, you know, like country type setting. And he wanted to hunt, but he never had the opportunity to do so. So he and I kind of learned together. Um, I do remember he took my brother and I out when we were younger, and he showed it to us. So we we would kind of know, like, this is something that you guys can do if you're interested. But he never pushed us to do it. And my brother took it up and loved it, and I didn't like it at all. I remember we went coon hunting one night. And he shot a coon, and I, I ran back to the house because we lived by a cornfield. I ran back to the house, and all I did was cry for hours upon hours. And my mother had to, like, soothe me. And it's because I didn't like killing things. I just didn't like it. And of course, we used the raccoon's pelt and, uh, you know, sold the pelt to a, to a fur trader. Yeah. Um, but it just, didn't, it just didn't sit well with me. And I told my father, I said, I'm never going to hunt. And uh, I, was, I was young then. But then as time went by, I, I can remember sitting in the, we have a big bay window. I would sit in the bay window on Sunday and I would wait for him to come home from up north to see if he got a deer and I'd want to hear his stories and stuff. As I got a little bit older, I started going with him and uh, he let me shoot a deer with my BB gun when it walked by us. Two does walked by us and I shot it with my BB gun. You know, of course I didn't kill it, but, but I bounced the, you know, BB off it. Yeah. 
And uh, then I was, I was hooked after that. I'm like, this is awesome because I couldn't believe we could get that close to an animal. The animal never knew we were there. So uh, that's kind of what, you know, that's the, what got me started. And then it just, uh, my dad and I are pretty much best friends. Um, when I got married, I'm no longer married, but when I got married, uh, he was my best man in my wedding. And I asked him to be my best man because, uh, you know, a lot of times you either have your brother, if you have a brother or your best friend. And since he was my best friend and my father, I'm like, what the hell? Why not? So, yeah. uh, you know, that's just the way it's always been. And it, it's still that way now. Now I'm, uh, I'll be 50 here in a few weeks, and my dad is 72. So, nice. Nice. and my mom and dad are still together, and they married in high school. So, wow. So, when when did you become hardcore about it? You know, because I've seen the pictures. You got you write books about it. You know, you you've written articles about it. Um, I, you know, I know. You know, without getting into all the the details, because we're going to get into it. Right, you're you're hardcore about this. When did you turn quote unquote hardcore about hunting? I I turned hardcore as soon as I got out of college when I had the time to put into it. Yeah. 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 As soon as that, that I always complained to my father, how come I can't shoot a big buck? And uh, and he always said to me, just be patient. He said, you need vacation time to shoot a big deer. He says, <laughs> he says you can't go out and shoot big deer regularly. Because my father always killed big big deer regularly when I was going to college and, you know, like when I was in high school. And uh, he said, uh, you just have to be patient. And when you have the time to put into it, that's when you'll start killing big deer. And then I killed my first, uh, you know, big deer when I was 21. And when I killed that deer, I was hooked. Like, I just wanted to shoot big deer. Yeah, right. So, what? When you became hardcore, and you said right out of college, right? Yeah. All right. So you're you you're 21. You're fresh out of college. Um, what did you do? Can you remember the approach to that season, or the approach to that that um, time off, or whatever that led you to harvesting that that big buck? Oh yeah, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I got out of college and I took the job. They offered me a job and it was a night shift job. The first thing I thought when they, when they said it was night shift, it was four to midnight. So I thought in my head, hmm, I can, that's going to be awesome. I'll get home at, you know, 1230 because I live close to where I work. I can sleep for a couple hours. I can go hunting and then I'll, I'll be able to come home, take a quick nap and I can go to work. So I did that every single day of the season. Um, and along through that season is when I, I found where this big buck was working. And I can remember everybody telling me, oh, you'll never kill a big buck in the Adirondacks and wide open hardwoods. A big buck won't go through that in the daylight. And the more I, I looked at it, my father and I went in there a couple times together. And uh, we looked at it, and I'm like, I know there's a deer coming through here. And then I can remember one day my father had killed a deer up north, and he, he came home. And then his buddy had killed one the day before. So they were both home with the deer. And uh, my father almost always went with me. And I asked him if he wanted to go with me that morning. And he said, no, they were too tired because they had dragged all day, you know, the last two days. It was freezing rain. And I went back to this place that we had, we had studied it quite a bit. And I guessed it was going to come down across this creek, like through this ravine. And I'm sitting there and it, it was really foggy, freezing rain. And uh, it was bitter, and I could barely see through the fog. I heard a stick crack. I looked behind me, and when I looked behind me, all I could see was a main beam, and it was walking away from me. 
And uh, when it started walking away from me, I'm like, oh, it's going to get over that knob. And there's a little knob there, even though I was in wide open hardwoods. And if it got over the other no- other side of the knob, I didn't know if I would see it again. So I had my gun because it's the Adirondacks. Most people rifle hunt in the Adirondacks. So uh, I centered the, the crosshairs on the rear end, and I just pulled the trigger. And uh, when I did, he came right up on his hind feet, and he went right over backwards, and uh, and he laid there dead. And uh, when that happened, I just kind of felt to myself like, man, I did a lot of work here and it all came together. And then I, I, it came through my head like, oh, deer will never go through the wide open hardwood. So I took some pictures of the hardwoods because you can see 200 yards through there. Yeah. But on that particular day with the fog, I couldn't see more than 50 yards. So who knows? He might not have went through there regularly, but on that foggy day he did and it, it was his mistake. Yeah. So what did... What did that particular uh, experience teach you, or not necessarily teach you per se, but what did it it kick off? Like, what did you learn from that experience that led you down this path of just like going to different states and hunting only mature deer and all that stuff? Well, I can't say that 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 particular hunt led me to to doing that because it was year. It was probably another nine years before I started going to other states and I still killed a lot of small deer between then and when I left to go to other states. Gotcha. Um, so it wasn't like that deer that kicked that off, but that deer is, it's still my favorite deer and I kill a lot of big deer and it's not, it's not even in my probably top eight deer as far as like largeness or whatever. Yeah. But that's still my favorite deer. And it's my favorite deer because it's the first deer I figured, I thought that I had figured out, and I killed him. I knew he lived there and I did everything I can. Like every day I hunted that general area. I didn't hunt that place, but I hunted all through there to try to figure out where I could kill a big deer. And, uh, and in the end it all worked out. I, I figured it out. He was there the same day I was, and I didn't get any sleep that hunting season. I bet you, I bet you I didn't average four hours of sleep a day that, that particular season. And I worked all year and I killed the deer on November 24th. And our season opens on October first. Got ya. So, got ya. So that was yeah. that was a that was the first big deer, and you know you were just jacked about it. But when did you start really getting into the details? Because you're 21 at this point. When did you start getting into the details, like wind direction and scent and scouting and you know going out and you know, doing all of the extra little details. Yeah. Scouting, uh, scouting has always been part of it for me. Uh, like as soon as I killed that deer, the, the season ended for me, you know, because we can kill one deer in the Adirondacks and, uh, we still had two weeks of the actual season left and then it went into winter. And then that, that year I started exploring different areas to see if I could find other places where I might be able to kill big deer. Um, so it really kicked me off in that direction. Um, another thing, which this probably causes a lot of controversy because, uh, you know, I hear about wind direction all the time. To be honest, I've never really paid attention to wind direction. Um, I've always hunted like bigger pieces of woods with exception of a few times I've been to the Midwest, uh, where I'm hunting public land that has like CRP fields or maybe private crop fields on a, on one side. And that's a little bit different because, of course, if deer are filtering in and out of that crop field, you don't want the wind there. But, uh, like, in, in bigger woods, 
deer can come from any place. Right. So I've always, when people ask me questions, I always say, don't get so overly involved with that that you miss your opportunity. So I usually have a general idea where the deer is going to come from. If the deer is coming from that, if I think it's coming from that direction, I'll do everything I can to make sure the wind's not blowing in that direction. But if it is one morning, I'm not going to, if I have a feeling that that's the morning, I'm not going to avoid that spot. Yeah. So are because, you, I mean, are you all, setting up in a different tree, trying to, to play the wind in a different way? No, no, not really. Um, hey, this is really odd, and I've, I've spoken about this a lot, too. Uh, I'm a firm believer that some people give off a more of an odor than other people. And it's weird. Like, in all my years of hunting, very rarely have I ever got winded. But my father gets winded regularly. And it's just, uh, it's one of those things. I, and it's not like I'm any, I'm not any higher in a tree. I don't do anything differently than he does. We can sit in the same tree and a deer will wind him and it won't wind me. And don't ask me why, because I'm not, you know, I can't answer that for you. But I mean, my philosophy is that some people give off different odor than others. And it's another thing too, is I, <laughs> this pisses people off when I hunt with them, especially like in Colorado. I, I very rarely sweat. Um, And then, like, we can do some, like, hardcore activity. Like, even if it's 80 degrees outside, I can do all sorts of manual labor outside and I won't sweat. (laughs) Um, So I'm a little bit of a freak of nature as far as that goes. So maybe I'm just the, maybe I'm the unsmelly man. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe you just don't shed dander like, uh like most humans do maybe you're yeah. the, uh, cause I was talking with a, a guy about this uh, a while back and he was talking about how they have a product that, uh, you know, uh, I think it's called a limb shield and you put it on your body and it reduces the amount, I guess you shed your skin or it slows it down or, or whatever. And you only really need to use it once every like three days or four days. Right. And, and then you can go in and you don't need the scent sprays and you don't need all this other junk that goes along with it. Uh, as far as scent, scent is concerned. And, uh, and so we had this conversation about, you know, shedding the skin cells and that's how deer, you know, deer can smell your breath or whatever. But just like there are some people who are short and some people who are extremely tall, (laughs) I, I, I have, I have, an okay, like I, I can, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I can understand that there's probably some people out there who just smell less or give off less odor than others. And that might be you. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I can, maybe I'm like the Superman of no smell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. But yeah, that's cool, man. Um, all right. So, so how old were you at this point when you really started getting into the, you know, the picking like 30 years old? Yeah. When I got to 30, I was all in. Um, yeah. At 30 years old, like I felt in my head, like I can kill a deer if I can find where it is. Like if it's a deer I want to hunt, I can kill it. Um, and I, you know, that's a lot of data, a lot of research. Um, and I felt, then I got to the point after I started going to the Midwest, cause I would just like pick a spot on a map and, and go. And then I got to the point after we started going, going out there. I mean, there are so few deer where I live and like we killed big deer regularly where I live. I thought in my head, I can go any place and find a deer. Um, 
you know, because probably I'm guessing in my head there are more of more mature deer out there than where I live. And I tell everybody that if you can kill big deer in the Northeast, any place, you can probably kill a big deer any place in the country. Yeah. So that kind of, then I decided, you know, there are a lot of big deer in the Midwest and I want to kill big deer and I want to see, I want to see deer because uh, you could hunt a whole season where I live and you might, if you had a good year, if you see 10 deer. Yeah. yeah. So it teaches you. It really teaches you to pay attention to the finer points, because if you don't, you're never going to see a deer. A lot of people will just quit hunting here because they don't see deer. Right. So you're saying that the lack of deer uh, in the landscape that you hunt uh, has led you to become successful, you know, and learning that terrain and hunting it and being, you know, doing what you do in, let's say the Adirondacks has led you to become way more successful in the Midwest where there's a higher deer population. Yes, that's correct. Yep. Okay. So how, how old were you then when you started taking trips out of state? I think the first one I took, I think I, I can't remember, but I think I was 31. 31. Okay. Yeah. All right. So well, you're, you're 31. You killed your biggest, uh, you killed at the time you were 21. You killed your biggest buck. What changed for you as far as strategy was concerned from the time you were 21 to the time you were 31? When I was 21, I would just ram through the woods that I wanted to see deer. Um, so I would go any place I could to see deer. I didn't really hunt, um, I didn't hunt particular deer all the time. Like I didn't find a place where a deer was living or working and try to hunt that deer. And then as time went on, I, I, I got a lot of experience and you get experience by killing deer. So, you know, I killed some small deer and I killed some more decent deer. But as I started doing this, I'm like, I don't, I don't, like I said in the beginning with the raccoon, it got to the point where I didn't really like killing small deer. I just felt it just didn't give me a good feeling. Yeah. So then when I wanted to kill bigger deer, I started looking for bigger deer, and that's what really did it. Uh, I started looking in areas where I thought there were, it was, I was more likely to find a, you know, a larger deer. And uh, that's kind of where I turned the corner with all of that. Gotcha. So how hard was it for you to locate these quote-unquote bigger deer? Uh, was it something that happened automatically, or did were, were there a couple seasons in there where you failed and then learned from your mistakes? No, I, to be honest, I think it's still, it's still going on. Cause every, you know, when I have, when I think I can do it now and it's like, Oh, that was easy last year. It wasn't so easy this year. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, we all make mistakes. Nobody doesn't make mistakes. Um, but like I, I try to learn from the mistakes and I think what happened along the way is, uh, like where I live, I learned uh, that I'm going to see I'm, my chances of, of seeing deer in the areas that I hunt are along the edge of swamps where like thing, uh, tim, fingers of timber run down into the swamp. So what I did is I learned looking look in those areas for big buck sign, whether it's signpost rubs, uh, big rubs, little rubs, scrapes. And if you find all that where those fingers come down into the swamps, you're probably going to see some of the, you know, some of the bigger deer in the area because they'll be in and out of that swamp because they have, they have cover in there. And if they want to travel along the edge, they can, you know, they can scent check all those ridges. They can look onto the ridges and then they can easily, easily escape back into that swamp. So uh, 
as I hunted more and more, I just became more familiar with that, and it just became part of my routine. So I would just cover as many miles as I could, try to find those swamps, and I would base my hunting season around that. Okay. So you're a believer in edge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, did that work right away for you? Oh, yeah, it worked right away. I, I could remember this. Uh, my dad and I spent a lot of time. I found this place, and he, this is when we were hunting out of a tent. And uh, it was, shoot, it was probably two and a half miles from the tent. And most people that I listen to when they say, oh, well, we walked over a mile, I sometimes I really doubt it because I know how far that is. And it's a long, long ways. Yeah. And, uh, like we found this place, it was way back in there. And I told my father, I said, I think that we can kill deer here and, uh, you know, big deer. And then, uh, it ended up, we, we found a pretty good place in there. And then I decided I would hunt it. And, uh, cause he hunted a different part of the, you know, around the corner of the mountain or whatever. And the first year that I hunted in there, I saw multiple deer and I, that's when I really started letting small bucks go. And I let a lot of small bucks go, and then I ended up killing a, a pretty good deer that year. And uh, then it kind of confirmed everything that I had been guessing along the way. And I just learned that uh, this is this kind of uh, strategy suits me. You know, of course, I do other things, but that's the first thing I try to do. Is to to scout till you find the sign and then set up on yeah. the sign? Yeah, scout till I find the sign and then set up there. Right. So, so with that said, how much, uh, how much weight do you give last year's sign when you do your scouting or are you only scouting fresh sign? It all depends on where I'm hunting. Like if I, if I'm hunting in an area where I know nobody, nobody else is hunting, um, last year's sign is everything. Cause I know that if I didn't kill the deer, nobody killed it unless winter killed it. Um, if I'm hunting, like, say I go to the Midwest and I find like last year's sign, it doesn't mean that much to me. Um, unless I find last year's sign that has year before sign and year before sign. Like if I have, if I have a place in there and I see all sorts of big rubs from years past, I know that big bucks probably use that every year. Um, so like in that situation, I'll use past year's sign. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what what you're saying is uh, in the Adirondack area where you're hunting that you know nobody's going back as far as you. No one's going back into those areas. So you feel confident that, hey, I didn't connect with this big buck that I was chasing last year. Uh, unless winter killed him or he got injured, uh, there's a good chance he's going to be coming through the same time the following year. Yeah, most definitely. And, uh, like, if if he is there, you'll you'll probably know early in the season. So, like, if I can't find him in there early in the season, like any sign of him, he might have changed locations. But if he's if his sign's not there, I'll go look someplace else. I'll have enough alternate places I can go because, I mean, the Adirondack Park is huge. I, I don't stay stuck in one place. Yeah. I've hunted all over it my entire life. And if I hunt here today in, like, uh, 60 miles, you know, north or northwest or whatever then i'll do that tomorrow it's not i'm not confined to an area i don't marry myself to it yeah yeah makes sense what was your first out-of-state hunt my first out-of-state hunt was in ohio and uh i went to ohio because i had traveled shooting uh, what they call the international bow hunting organizations triple crown 
Yep. And my goal when I started doing that, of course, was to, you know, be competitive and, you know, win national awards. But my my other goal besides that was it's a bow hunting organization and I wanted to find like minded people who lived more in the areas where bigger deer were. So I'm like, I'll go and I'll shoot and I'll see if I can meet people who live in areas where big deer live. Maybe I can make friends and some an opportunity might present itself. So then I, I shot in Ohio one summer and I was shooting with this guy. And at the end of the, I told him that the archery opportunities in where I lived in New York were not good because where I lived, the archery season is only approximately two weeks long. And it's in, uh, it, it goes from October 1st to like October 14th or so, you know, not a very good time for deer to be moving around. So he, at the end of the weekend, he told me, he says, I got a great place I can show you out here if you want to come out. And I said, I'd love to come out, but my dad's my best friend. Can he come with me? And he's like, oh yeah, that's not a problem. So we, dad and I made plans. We drove out there. And when we got out there, uh, we asked around for two days. Like this guy was the nicest guy in the world, but he just didn't wouldn't get going. And I'm like, Oh man, are we ever going to get in the woods? So then finally he brings us to this public campground and he showed us all the, you know, this big uh, public hunting area all around the campground. And he kind of, you know, he pointed in some directions. He told us places we could go. And he said, you can explore all these. There's big bucks in here. So we're like, okay. So then the, that night I found a place to sit and I had a beagle run a six pointer and a doe past me. And I'm like, Oh, this is great. I'm sitting next to the road. I can see the road almost. And uh, so I'm like, well, I'll sit here in the morning. And then the next morning I saw, I think I saw 10 bucks and I saw three shooters. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. And I, and I, cause a hot doe went by me. Gotcha. And uh, so I'm like, I, you know, I met dad at lunchtime and I said to him, I said, I don't care if I ever go back to New York. So that was kind of my, that was kind of my introduction to hunting out of state. So, so you had a, you had a really good experience. Did you walk away uh, from that first out of state hunt with a harvest? Uh, probably you're going to say something else with an H, but <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't walk away with a harvest that trip, but I did that year in the same place. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So, so it was good. I ended up, I went back out and I, I killed a pretty good deer. So, okay. And what was it about that trip that kind of said, okay, yes, I love bow hunting. I love bow hunting in New York, but now I've experienced the greener grass, so to speak. Um, what made you at that point say, I'm going to do this a lot. The thing that made me say that the most is like, I, Unless somebody hunts in the Northeast, it's really hard to explain. Like, you can't imagine how much goes into hunting and how hard it is and how physically demanding it is. And I enjoy it. Like, don't get me wrong, I enjoy it. But I also enjoy big deer. And when I went out there, like, I stayed for a week. I mean, that was the first day I told you about. And I, I saw some really big deer. And uh, I'm like, this is just awesome. And since I like seeing deer and I like seeing a lot of deer, uh, I just decided that, you know, I really like this. And uh, and my dad was getting older. Um, I think it, it it sounds kind of corny now, but I mean, my dad was like 50, which is what I am now. And I said he was getting older, but, you know, now he's 72 and he's still running around like he's 30. So, yeah. And now I'm the old guy, you know, so. <laughs> but, uh 
but he's yeah. So I just decided, you know, he's getting older, and uh, you know, we we always packed a tent in about three miles into the woods, and this was more convenient. I I was sitting right next to the road when I saw ten bucks and three shooters, and I could see cars driving by. So I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty easy. I kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> so of course it, it didn't end up being that easy as time went on, but uh, it's just a different perspective than where I was coming from. Gotcha. So I mean, yeah. just seeing the deer and seeing the numbers and, you know, seeing 10 bucks in one morning run by was enough for you to say, okay, uh, I got, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this more. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like you can probably, you, you probably relate to this with your kids. Okay. You, you tell your kids now, yeah, you can have a piece of candy here, but don't, you know, don't be getting your hand in the bowl. And then you go in the other room, you go to get something in the kitchen, you come back, they have a whole handful of candy and they're just eating it. <laughs> you know, it, it's the same way. Like I had a piece of candy and then I just wanted more and more of it. Yeah. So, so um, kind of taking a backward step here, when you were shooting for the IBO and you decided to take up competitive, competitive archery, did that do anything for you? As far you know, as far as the actual hunting itself, preparing for the moment of truth and all that stuff, or or were you already practicing that much? Nope i've I've shot my bow since I was a kid, but what it did do it it helped me in the moment of truth for killing big deer because I've been in a lot of pressure situations over the years. Of course, you put the pressure on yourself, but right. I mean it's a lot of pressure, like. I've shot in national events where you're shooting for, you know, for the championship or whatever. And I've shot in world championships when you make the cut, stuff like that. And uh, the feeling I got during those shoot-offs was the same feeling I got when I saw big bucks. And then I learned through the course of it, if I can execute a good shot right now and I can hit like, you know, a quarter, quarter size ring, I can, I can probably get a deer. Yeah. So, uh, so it just, it made me a lot better since, since I started doing that, I really, I haven't had a lot of issues, uh, getting the job done. Although, you know, last year, the year before, I think I missed two giant bucks in the same morning, but it was a little bit out of my control. It wasn't something that I, that I did in my shot execution that messed it up. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your preparation for upcoming seasons. Um, and I know that you are, are you still taking, uh, multiple out of state hunts every year? Oh uh, yeah. Yep. I usually try to do at least two of them. All right. What are you doing this upcoming year, this upcoming season? Well, I will know in probably a couple of weeks cause I might be coming to your home state, but, uh, if I don't, I'll, I'll probably go to Illinois. Okay. Um, so it's either I'll be going to Iowa or I'll be going to Illinois. I don't know which one. It depends on if I draw in, in Iowa. Gotcha. Um, so if you draw Iowa, you're going to go to Iowa. If not, you're going to go to Illinois. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's my tentative plans for deer hunting. All right. Any other states? Yeah. Uh, yep. I will be hunting elk in Colorado. Okay, cool. I will too. Yeah. Um, all right. So you're getting ready to, to cash in on a very coveted tag that is Iowa archery. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing to, are you, are you going to try to hunt public or do you have a, a private hookup? What's uh, what are you doing there? <laughs> uh, I've hunted public land there a number of times, um, you know, like years ago and it wasn't so hard to draw a tag. 
so I I have that pretty much set. Like I have a general couple general areas that I hunt, and uh, it's weird because they're. And that's another thing. I like a lot of people say, "Oh, the public hunting in Iowa, there's not that many people." Well, I've never seen any place as heavily pressured as Iowa on public land. Yeah. And I think that that's probably because there's uh, there's not much public land compared to other places. That's right. But the way that I look at it is. Um, you know, I like to go to Iowa because then I, like, in my field or whatever, like, I write books, I write for different magazines, stuff like that. Then I have that to to write about mm-hmm. because a lot of people think that they're just going to go there and kill a big buck if they're on public land, and it's not that easy. Um, nope. To be to be honest, in other states, I've seen bigger bucks in other states, but I, you know, I also killed really good deer in Iowa, so... But I think that people have a big, it's a big fallacy that they think that they're going to go there and kill, you know, monster deer because they're definitely not behind every tree. Yeah. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I touch base on it uh, on this podcast quite a bit, which is, you know, a lot of people are like, dude, you hunt Iowa. You hunt in Iowa. Right. Public land in Iowa is like public land almost everywhere else because Iowa has like 2% public ground and yes yeah. you might catch the luck you know you might get lucky and catch a a buck running a hot doe through a chunk of public ground however there's you know because there's two percent public ground all the locals are hunting that piece and any out-of-staters that are coming in are hunting that piece as well so it it makes it it makes it difficult Oh yeah, that's what I tell people too. Because I, I do a lot of seminars in the winter, you know, where I go to different outdoorsman shows and I speak, and it's usually about hunting uh, on public lands. And they everybody says, "Oh, well, I have Iowa points," and I said, "Don't get so excited." I said, "I can tell you better places in other states to hunt." Yeah. Um, if you don't, if you can't deal with people, then I would never go to Iowa with a, on a public land hunt because you're gonna you're gonna deal with people. And uh, like I always tell them, a lot of people out there don't have private ground to hunt on, but they live there and they hunt. And a lot of their private ground got taken over by outfitters and stuff, so then they don't have any place to hunt. So where are they going to go? They're going to go to these little pieces of public land to hunt because that's the only place they have. Yep. Yep. So That's a fact, man. That's yeah. a fact. I mean, I lost access like seven years ago. I lost access to like... 1200 acres because the landowner died and uh out of state landowners came in bought up the ground and now they no one's on their ground all year round except for october and november and when they and they come to hunt it and oh yeah uh, yeah so (laughs) that's uh that's happening a lot uh, in the area that i that i live but when you're when you're going to let's say let's say you're this is your first trip to iowa Okay. Just pretending this is your first trip to Iowa. What are you doing to prepare, uh, uh, for this hunt, whether it's locating places to go hunt, staying, uh, preparing for the trip when you live so far away? I'll be on the computer nonstop. Um, and another thing too, is like, I, I'm fortunate because I have a lot of different hobbies and then like, you know, my occupation, just different things I do. I know people from all over the country. Um, so with that right there, I can use a lot of those people. Like they'll give me, they might not know something that I need, but they'll know somebody who knows somebody that has what I need. 
So what I do is I do a lot of networking to try to narrow things down for myself. And then once I narrow it down, I'll get on the computer and I'll start doing all the work. Like whether I got to find a place to stay because, uh, you know, I'm the poor man hunter. I always stay in a tent. I don't stay in a motel or anything like that because it saves me money. And uh, then I got to find a place, you know, it's got to have a bathroom because you can't, you know, unless you bring your own bathroom. So, you know, it's just a lot of like little things that people don't think about. And then you got to make sure that you have food, uh, you know, where you place for your food. We usually bring, uh, I usually bring an enclosed trailer and try to stay in a campground. And then in the enclosed trailer, we have a generator and uh, a freezer. So, you know, it works well. If we kill a deer, we can freeze everything, and then we kind of keep our food in there too. So uh, everything works out for the best that way. But a lot of a lot of stuff goes into it that people don't think about. And uh, it's probably harder to do that than the actual hunting because once, once I get there, if there's enough public land, I'll wander all over it, and I'll waste a couple of days just wandering around to find out if the area has what I need or, or I want to go elsewhere. The downfall in Iowa is you're limited to a zone. So if you pick a zone, you better make sure you got the right zone that has enough land that if the, the land you're looking at, if there's a problem with it, then you you could you know basically waste a lot of money and have no place to hunt. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's some good information. What about the actual scouting itself uh, on your computer? What resources are you using? Um, what are you looking for specifically on a map that tells you, I want to invest time in this location? Yeah, I look for the same things that I kind of look for back here. And I, I study like uh, contour lines. And when I look at contour lines, I just look for areas that kind of go up and over a hill that, that have a saddle in them. Uh, I look for places that have like little rolling knobs in them. Uh, because like, I know I've noticed in my experience, a lot of places with little rolling knobs are good. I look for any place with water that deer can cross. Um, I look for any private crop ground. If there's private crop ground around there and there's a lot of, uh, you know, like heavy stuff on the edge of it, that's on public ground. A lot of those deer will live on, you know, in that public ground, but they'll feed on the private ground. Right. And a lot of those places are, they're not really accessible unless you do a lot of work. And uh, some of them are landlocked too. So if you can find out who owns it, I mean, I use all uh, Onyx Map stuff, which has the, you know, the landowner right on it. If you can find the landowner and you just call them and say, hey, I don't want to hunt on your land, but can I walk through it? Then a lot of those people are pretty open to stuff like that. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, taking a chance and trying. The worst they can do is say no. Right. Right. So I spend, you know, I spend a lot of time doing that. And, uh, but really when it comes right down to it, my biggest thing is, like I said, I'll, I'll usually go for 10 days to 14 days and I'll waste two to three days just ramming through the woods and ruining everybody else's hunt. So, yeah, but you know, it's, it's not about other people. It's about kind of, you know, I'm trying to set up for the next seven, eight days here. So excuse me if I walk by you. Yeah. And it's not like you're doing that, like to ruin everybody. You're going in, you're doing your scouting and uh, you know, that's what everybody else is doing too. Right. I mean, yeah. And the thing is too, like I won't, if somebody, if I'm going to go look around someplace, like I might go sit someplace in the morning and then I want to look, I want to spend the rest of the day just looking around and uh, 
I won't go into a piece of woods if a vehicle's parked there just because I don't really want to, you know, disturb that person. Yeah. Because I'm not a fan when somebody walks by me right before, you know, it gets dark or whatever, and I don't want to do it to other people. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, yeah. so you, you've you kind of looked at the area that you want to hunt on the digital side of things. Now, once you get there and you put the boots on the ground, let's say it's, you know, it's that late October, early November time frame. What are you looking for specifically once you get to the land that you've selected digitally? Yeah. One, uh, one thing I forgot to tell you, one of the maps I use, I think it's called hillmap.com. And, uh, Hill map has your, like, it'll show the contours and then it'll show like an aerial photo. And that, that thing works pretty good because it gives you a better look of what the land is actually like. And uh, I use that a lot because then I know, okay, there's really steep ridges right here. There's not steep ridges. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you just see everything a lot better on there. But anyhow, once I get there, um, the, the areas that I've had the most success are really fresh scrapes with fresh rubs there. And I'll look for does. If I find all three of those things in the, in the same general area, I'll just try to set up where it looks like there's the most deer traffic. If I find where there's the most deer traffic, then I know that I'm probably going to see a mature deer, you know, as long as the sign is in there, like if he's got big rubs in there, usually little bucks don't thrash big trees. Like I've seen little bucks rub big trees, but I've never seen them thrash big trees. So if I can find big trees that are thrashed, then you know the fresh scrapes and uh, and a lot of does in there, then I'll I'll camp out there. Okay. All right. So after that, then uh, when you say camp out, how much time are you giving an area before you move out and go somewhere else? Go to Plan B. Uh, it all depends. Um, it depends on the activity there. If the activity is good, I might stay uh, you know a day or two. And if it's not good, then I'll just, uh, maybe the next morning I'll go someplace else. I don't ever limit myself to one place. What I do is I find a bunch of places like the one I just explained to you. And then I'll, I guess I'll use that term again, camp out in all of them. Like I'll make sure I just keep like kind of doing a circle, even if they're in the same piece of woods, I might sit one place till noon and I'll get up and I'll walk to the other place, which might be a half hour away. And then I'll sit there till dark. So I'm still in that same general piece of woods, but I'm not in the same exact location because I know that those big deer are living in that piece of woods someplace. Gotcha. Okay. And is there, do you try to like go through a cycle, like cycle stands or is it based off wind direction or access routes? Uh, It's actually a little bit of everything. That's another thing I do too is, uh, Every year that I get, like a lot of public land I go back to, I return to the same places. If it's, you know, if it's a good, if I think it's like a really good spot, I'll return there. And uh, what I do is every time I go someplace, I take all these notes. And when I have the notes, I kind of, I have this one place in Iowa where I hunt. And I know there's a certain wind that you just can't hunt there. So, like, I'll just look on my notes right there and I'll be like, oh, I can't, can't hunt that place this morning. You know what I mean? And then there are other places where I have it marked where it's like the wind doesn't matter here today. So it's, I kind of try to do a little bit of everything in all the different places I go. And I, I think note taking is probably one of the most important things you can do. 
because then I can just reference the notes, whether it's on, say, my iPhone or my iPad or say anything like that. I can just run down through the notes. It's marked Iowa. It's marked Illinois. It's marked Colorado. And I know, okay, don't go here on a day like this. Like I, I have one of them that, uh, you know, it just says don't go here on, on this type of day. So I'm like, okay, I'll go someplace else. And uh, I usually hunt with uh, maybe two to three people, my father and, and one of my good buddies. And what we'll do is we might rotate in different places. Like we don't care who kills the big deer as long as one of us gets it if we know it's there. Okay. So it's almost like a team effort. Yeah, it's a team. It's a total team effort. It's, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not a good team player, then don't be involved in that type of hunting. Because we, I like if my buddy Brian kills a big deer and I say I have all these trail cam pictures of it, I could care less. I mean, I'm just as happy for him as he is for me. And, and it all works out that way. The really hard part is finding people like that. Cause, uh, you know, sometimes along the line, people just get, you know, sometimes jealousy, stuff like that. And, you know, he said, she said, and, and it gets really uncomfortable, but I have probably the best hunting partners I could ever ask for. Yeah, that's a good thing. You know, and I hear a lot of stories about that, uh, about guys when they go on, when they go on these trips, it's a team effort, right? They, they're going into an area, they're working together to try to kill, um, one big buck that maybe one of them seen, they talk about it, you know, and then one guy goes in, another guy may flank that position or, um, uh, they might surround a a bedding area or surround, a, a, a scrape system or, or a rub line or something like that or like this edge that they think these deer are coming out to and and uh usually someone has some kind of encounter with them yeah that's exactly what happens i mean, i wrote about it in the book of mine that you have and uh i think the chapter is titled teamwork and uh, that's exactly what it is like i have a bunch of stories in there where we we went into an area we knew the deer was going to be there like I have one of the biggest deer I've ever killed. My father calls it his deer because he hunted there for like four or five days in a row. And this deer kept, it was on the ridge across the way. It was chasing does around there. He says, listen, come in here with me tomorrow. I see, he said, one of us is going to kill that deer because it's going to come off that ridge. It keeps coming off where I'm not. And then I went in there and I, I sat in the stand that he had there all week and I killed the deer. And I didn't do any of the work at all. <laughs> so... <laughs> So he always tells people, you know, because I have the deer mount, and he's like, that's my deer right there. We joke about it, but it, it's funny because it, it's our deer. Like, right. you know, and, and I know that. I know that I didn't have a lot to do with killing that deer. Right. So, so you know, once you get to these these places, are you running trail cameras at all? Oh, yeah. Trail cameras are my key to all of my success in the Midwest. I want to know if I can, if that area holds the deer that I want. Okay, now I hunted a place last year out of state, and uh, we went into this area, and we saw all sorts of people. I've never seen so much out-of-state pressure in an area, and of course, I'm out of state also, but I couldn't even believe it. I'm like, holy shit. I said, I, it's like a, it was like a Walmart parking lot, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, there can't be any deer in here, and then and everybody's telling us, oh, we, we used to see big deer here. There aren't any big deer here anymore, and they were serious. You know, it's not like people pulling the wool over our eyes. Yeah. And, uh, and then they were all disappointed that hunting sucks, you know, EHD went through here. Well, we put trail cameras all through the woods within like, uh, probably a 45 mile radius. I think, I think we had 20 cameras in the woods. Okay. So, 
what we do is we don't we won't check them all, but we'll kind of rotate through places. Some of them we might not get until the last day when we're coming home. So uh, we went through, and almost every camera we had, we had you know, for public land, we had big bucks on them. And uh, I'm like, wow. And then we now like this year we always joke, oh, no big deer here. <laughs> but at the same time, I could understand it because when we were hunting, we weren't seeing a lot of deer. And then, uh, then one day it was like somebody dropped a deer bomb out of the sky and the woods just let loose. I mean, I saw, I saw a lot of bucks and I, I ended up, I killed a really nice buck up until that point. I think I had been there seven days maybe, and I had barely seen a deer. Yeah. So, but I knew they were there because I had the picture of them. And then I ended up killing one of the deer that I had the picture of. Yeah. Hey, I'm telling you right now, that's what, uh. That's what it was like this year for me on the farm that I hunted. It was like nothing, 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 nothing. And then a, a like a flip, a switch was flipped yeah. and the deer just started moving. Yeah. So. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that trail camera thing works great. And I don't use expensive cameras because I'm on public land. They're going to, you know, most likely get, you know, they might get stolen. Although in all the years I've hunted public land, I've only ever had one camera stolen and I know who did it. Like, I don't know the guy, but I know the guy that was hunting there that did it because it, it, he was the only one that was in there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, and I just use cheap Tasco cameras from Walmart. I think they're $24. Yeah. And they, and I've collected so many of them that I have piles of them. And that just gives you the information you need. You're you're not looking for yep. the best high res imagery. You're looking nope. to know if there's a shooter deer in the area. Yeah, I just want the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're only really using trail cameras while you're while you're on these out of state hunts. Yeah, and it's weird because I didn't tell you this, but usually I can't get as much time off as my, my father's retired, and uh, my best buddy Brian is he works at the Millwright Union. So he doesn't work during hunting season. So what they do is I do all of the online research and then I do all the behind the scenes research and then I send them out there and I tell them where I want everything. So what they do is they just beat bushes for a week and they do all that stuff before I get there. Then I drive out there and I get there. By the time I get there, we have it determined. This is good. This isn't good. And then we start, you know, planning accordingly. Yeah. And it's basically like they're the scouting force. And then I, I kick it off. They research what I already researched online and then they confirm it or deny it. And then we just go from there. Yeah. So it's a little, it's a little different than what most people would do. But I mean, but if I were to do it and I didn't have that option there, like I used to, cause we never had that option before and, uh, and we did all right, but I just did all that data when I was there and then I would use it for future years, you know, to, to use in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's cool, man. I feel like that's the way to do it. Um, have you ever done one of these trips solo to where you were running blind into a place? Uh, yeah, I, I've done that a few times. I, I've been to Missouri a few times. I've been to Illinois a few times doing that. Um, when I went to Iowa, I didn't have a clue where I was going. Um, somebody did help me, but I didn't end up in the place they helped me with. Yeah. So, uh, in the end, when I ended up in another spot there, um, that was all blind. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, and I do the same thing there. It's just, uh, you know, kind of 
it's weird. Like a lot of people ask me, well, how do you find a good spot? And I said, this is going to sound, sound maybe arrogant or maybe cocky. I said, but I walk through the woods and it just sticks out to me. And uh, like, I have a young kid right now that he, he really wants to kill big bucks and, and he keeps asking me, well, how do you know? And I said, I can just, I walk through the woods and I can just see it. And I said, I, I think it's from years and years of experience of where I've seen big deer. I just look at it and I'm like, oh, this is a, an area that a big deer will travel. Yeah. Like most people, I think, get, most people I know who are really good hunters are, uh, they're like over analytical and I'm not, I could care less. I don't overanalyze anything with deer. Yeah. That's my problem. Uh, I'll tell you right now, I'm a self-admitted overanalyzer. I'll I'll question myself to the point of talking myself out of a gut instinct. Yeah, no, I not me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so then, you know, you've you know, I'm looking through your Facebook page here, and I I see the picture of all these deer hanging on your you know, hanging on the barn, just, you know, like gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous animals, your success over the years. What would you say to someone who is, I know, I know there's real, there's no real short answer to this, but someone who wants to get into, you know, who may be living in a state or they live in an area that's high pressure. They want to get out. They want to go experience new things. What is one of the biggest things that, or the biggest piece of advice that you can give them about going and finding success somewhere else? The biggest thing I do this a lot in seminars, because I always ask questions afterwards and, and you know, this always comes up and I always tell people, don't be afraid to give up what you have at home. Cause a lot of people are unwilling to leave what they have at home. And that was me because I killed a lot of deer in the Adirondacks. I didn't leave until I was 30, 31. I wish I had left when I was 20. Yeah. And, uh, and another thing too, find reliable people you can hunt with who don't care whether you or them is the one that succeeds because I, like a lot of people do, you know, they do things alone. Like I, I know listening to Mark and stuff like that, he travels a lot alone. He does a lot of alone hunting with my medical condition. It's a lot more difficult for me to do that because I'm a type one diabetic. So it's, it's safer for me to be with somebody. Right. Um, and I think it's safer for everybody. Like just say you get in, you know, in a situation, uh, you might fall out of a tree or something. I just think you need really reliable people. And, uh, sometimes it's not your best friends. It's, uh, but then they become your best friends. You know, like my, my buddy now, Brian is probably my best friend and my buddy Doug. And, uh, before we really started hunting together, we weren't best friends. We were just acquaintances. Right. So yeah, it's great advice. Now look, I want to ask you the opposite end of this question failing, right? You know, I'm, I'm a huge believer that <laughs> you fail and you learn from your mistakes. What is, what is one failure or a couple failures that you've gone through that you turned around and came out on the other, the other end, uh, better? Yeah. This, this is going to be, this is going to sound like, like almost, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, hypocritical to what I just said. Yeah. My biggest failure was bringing the wrong people with me. Yeah. Okay. And I had, I had an incredible place to hunt. It was public land. Nobody hunted it. And it was, it looked like the, the shittiest land you can ever imagine. Like when you drove down the road, you're like, no deer would ever live there. That's horrible looking land. Yeah. 
And I made the mistake of bringing somebody with me. And uh, I had killed some big deer in there. And then they ended up bringing everybody in my hometown there. <laughs> so, yeah. So oh, uh, I, I, and then what I did is I said, well, I'm done there. I, I'm not hunting there anymore because I couldn't handle it. You know, and then they would go out the week before I was, I was supposed to go. Cause I went the same week every year. And uh, so then what happened is I'm like, I'm going to try other places. I found this place. I can find another place. So then I hunted Iowa, Missouri, uh, Illinois. <laughs> so, I mean, I ended up in better places for me. Like, uh, you know, like that place was a good place, but I didn't have to deal with all that bullshit when I went elsewhere. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that, that would be one of my biggest failures. You got to be really careful who you take. Like I didn't listen to advice. A lot of people gave me advice and said, uh, you know, this, you shouldn't do that. This person did that. And I'm like, no, they're, they're a pretty good person. They've always treated me well, but I didn't have enough experience hunting with them. And, uh, the, and these people did me, fa- I had two different people do it to me, two different States. And, uh, I'm a pretty nice guy and I'm like, okay, you know, you help me, I'll help you. And that's what we did. And then, uh, it just didn't, didn't work out. So, yeah. Yeah. That happens, man. Now yeah. I got to ask you this question. I'm flipping, flipping through. I, I may have to edit this out. I may not have to, but I'm flipping through <laughs> the pictures of all your deer, and I come across your, a knee <laughs> that I'm assuming yours is yours with what looks like a pair of dentures. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my knee. <laughs> yeah. So I want you to tell me that story of wherever you were at walking through the woods and I assuming you just ran into him. Okay. We were hunting. I was hunting with my buddy, Brian and our buddy, Jim, and we're hunting and we're hunting this area where it's, it's early archery season in New York and it's in the Adirondacks, but there's a, it's a really big mountain and it goes down into like some fields at the base of the mountain. It's a huge valley. And my buddy, Brian lives there. So uh, he tells me that I got a big buck. I've been watching it all summer. He says, I think we can kill it in this field because it comes out in this field regularly. So I'm like, all right, let's give it a whirl. So I go up there, and I'm sitting in the tree, and it's getting near dark, and uh, Jim shoots a deer. So, or no, was it Jim? No, Brian shot the deer. So uh, and he says, yeah, I, I text him on the phone. He's like, yeah, he says, I got it. it. It went out in the middle of the field, and then it ran up through the woods. So I'm like, okay. So then Jim met us because he was down below us, and then it, now it's dark. So Jim's going to be the lead tracker. So we start going through it, and uh, he's going along, and we're following the blood. And uh, and he says, uh, hey, I found something. And he throws a pair of teeth back at me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I got these teeth in my hand. So, uh, yeah, I uh, we – and the, the odd thing is, like, I mean, they were old, and we have no idea where they came from. It's in the middle of the woods. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, like, years and years ago, it was all, like, uh, you know, like, crop fields and stuff, like, over the years it had grown up. Yeah. And my father wears dentures, so I asked him, I said, Dad, did you lose your dentures 30 years ago? So, uh, but he didn't lose his dentures up there. And it turns out it was in, a like, an, an old, old Christmas tree farm. So the only thing I can really think of is maybe somebody lost their dentures 
when they were cutting Christmas trees. Oh my lord, that's crazy! Yeah, so, yeah. Like the there's a story for everything, right? Just <laughs> the the weirdest stuff you find in the in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, we kept the dentures as good luck. So uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I carry them in my pocket, and uh, then. I sh- I had one of the best hunting years I've ever had. I killed, you know, I killed deer, big deer in every state I hunted. So I was, I was all good. That's awesome. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, I just would hate to be somehow you get pulled over and a cop says, all right, put your hands on the hood. We're going to frisk you. And they pull out a pair of dentures that don't belong to you. <laughs> yeah, that might be, uh, that might be tricky. <laughs> Where did you get these? <laughs> Found them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, Todd, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, chat with us. I definitely want to get you back on again, um, and uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it, and uh, had a good chat with you. It was fun. It's always good to talk about deer hunting and funny stories. Ladies and gentlemen, another podcast is in the books. Huge shout-out to Todd Mead for hopping on. Go check out one of his books. Um what else huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast hunter safety systems lone wolf tree stands ripcord air arrests wasp broadheads ozonic scent elimination and prime archery go check out all the companies that support this podcast because they support this podcast and they support me which means i can keep putting out kick-ass content for your ears and giving you guys eargasms um all, all the time I'm just gonna just gonna <laughs> I'm gonna stop right now be sure to subscribe be sure to go follow us on social Facebook and Instagram and have a great weekend if you're gonna be in a tree our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us to please wear your damn safety harness happy Friday <laughs>